joined Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the current state of China-Japan relations and how Japan views China. While China and Japan are essential trade partners, their broader relationship is marked with tension. Historical grievances taint the relationship, with China remaining highly sensitive to Japanese portrayals of its occupation of China in the 20th century. The two countries also frequently clash over the status of disputed territories in the East China Sea. Chinese provocations in the region, its growing military power and assertiveness, have compounded fears in Tokyo and compelled Japan's Prime Minister Kishida to call for an increase in Japanese defense spending over the next five years. These factors have left publics on both sides deeply skeptical of the other. Polling indicates that two-thirds of Chinese view Japan unfavorably, while over 90% of Japanese view China unfavorably. How exactly do these regional powers view each other, and how might the future of the China-Japan relationship evolve? Joining me to discuss these questions is my colleague Chris Johnstone, Japan Chair and Senior Advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to joining CSIS, Mr. Johnstone served in government for 25 years in a variety of senior positions with a focus on U.S. policy towards Japan and in the Pacific. He served twice on the National Security Council. As Director for East Asia under President Biden and Director for Japan and Oceania Affairs under President Obama. Chris, thank you for joining me today. Bonnie, it's a real pleasure to be here and, and to work with you again after all these years. Thank you. So the topic of our discussion today is China-Japan relations and particularly how Japan views China. I like to start by discussing the history of China-Japan relations. How did we get to where we are now uh, since the two countries established diplomatic relations? Yeah, I think th this is a this is a great way to start. I think the point to make up front that is that this is a long arc, and we're at one point of it after basically forty、uh, years of evolution. So after the Nixon shocks of nineteen seventy one. Tokyo, as you know, moved very quickly to build ties with with China. This had been a goal of the Japanese, frankly, soon after the occupation.、Uh, it was the U.S. that sort of held Japan back from from pursuing closer ties with China、uh, in those years before 1971. But after the U.S. began to engage、uh, under President Nixon, Japan moved very quickly to do so too. Normalization in 1972. A、peace treaty in 1978. That's followed almost immediately by、uh, very comprehensive economic cooperation. This is the period in which Japan began to give large-scale yen loans、uh, to support China's modernization. The assumption, of course, at the time was that Japan was the lead goose in the Asian economy, and that it would support. China's modernization, but Japan would continue to be the lead goose, and that was the logic of engagement: support China's modernization because it would also support Japan's continued economic leadership in the region. All of that begins to change in the 1990s. I sort of date it to the nuclear test in 1994, the Cross-Strait Crisis in 1996. That is the beginning of thinking in Tokyo about what is China's future,、uh, and is it as sort of optimistic as? As they had assumed, 
really begins to shift in the early 2000s with the rise of disputes over the Senkaku Islands over history. You may remember this is the time when Prime Minister Koizumi is visiting the Asakuni Shrine. A um, lot of uh, friction over that at the time. Attempts to manage differences begin to become more difficult. You may recall that in 2001, uh, the two sides agreed to explore joint development of the gas fields in the East China Sea. That, of course, goes nowhere. China begins to unilaterally drill on its side of the line, partly because it can. The water is shallower there. Uh, Japan unable to do so only on its side. So this sense that efforts to manage the relationship aren't being successful. And then it really begins to explode around 2010, where China now has the capability to deploy Coast Guard vessels regularly to the, to the Senkaku Islands. We have incidents, you'll recall the incident when uh, there's a collision between boats, the Japanese arrest uh, the Chinese captain of the ship, and that precipitates a whole series of, of friction between the two countries. So that's sort of the arc. And I think what, what happens during this period as China undertakes the military modernization, that's the larger backdrop to the frictions over the Senkaku Islands, there is a recognition, a growing recognition in Tokyo that this strategy hasn't worked, that Japan's leadership position in Asia is, is in question, and that China is on the rise and that it's not a status quo power. That's sort of the 40-year arc. And so, you know, the point we are at now is at the end of that arc, of course, but it reflects a long evolution in Japanese thinking over this period. Chris, thank you so much for a really great review of the relationship and how we got to here. I do want to bring, quickly bring this to the present, which is of much more interest to our podcast listeners. We know that Prime Minister Kishida is still a relatively new leader. How does he view China and how does his view differ from that of his predecessors? Kishida, as, as you probably know, hails from a different part of the Liberal Democratic Party than Prime Minister Abe did. But what's striking is how much continuity there is in his approach to the relationship with China. Traditionally, Kishida has been viewed as uh, sort of more, um, for lack of a better term, dovish part of the party, more supportive of engagement with, with China. Uh, but he has really picked up right where Prime Minister Suga and Prime Minister Abe left off. The Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, I think, has really sort of galvanized uh, his perspective on this, the rise of this partnership with no limits between, between Moscow and Beijing. Uh, Kishida has said repeatedly, publicly, that Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. And I think uh, there's been particularly particular alarm on his part and, um, and among those around him about the level of political support that Beijing has offered to Russia in the conflict and uh, the implications that might have for the way China may choose to behave in the future in the region, in, in the Indo-Pacific region. Another focus that, that Kishida has also picked up and emphasized is this emphasis on, on economic security, investment screening, export controls, protection of critical technology. The Japanese passed new legislation to advance all of these things just this year. They're in the process of developing sort of the regulatory framework around that right now. And that also reflects, as I said before, this concern about China's economic rise and the threat it poses to, to, to Japan's technological advantages. The one new area that Kishida has brought a particular emphasis on is nuclear weapons, actually. Kishida comes from, you may know, Hiroshima. He has a long-standing interest in disarmament and nuclear issues. It's been sort of a hallmark, both of his time as foreign minister and in the early days of his time as prime minister. 
So one of the things that he has done is call for more transparency in China's nuclear arsenal and has sought to put that more front and center on the international agenda with respect to China. So Kishin is, is very much uh, picking up uh, in the mold of, of those who came before, which is striking given that he does come from a different part of the LDP. Chris, you may have already alluded to many of this already, but as you look at uh, Japan's top concerns with China, is there a way that you can rank maybe Japan's top three concerns? In what ways China poses the most challenges to Japan or Japan's perceptions or concerns with respect to the international or regional security order? Yeah, sure. So um, th- there's the, the proximate concern um, that drives a lot of the public opinion uh, surrounding China. And that relates, of course, to the pressure on the Senkaku Islands and the what's perceived as China's territorial ambitions. But more broadly, the concern that is widely felt in Tokyo is that, frankly, China is not a status quo power, that it seeks to revise the international order in a way that supports Chinese interests and will negatively impact Japan's interests. Uh, and as Japan looks across the region and globally, they see Chinese behavior in the South China Sea. They see what they perceive to be China's debt trap diplomacy and efforts under the Belt and Road Initiative um, as compromising rules and standards in the, in the international economic space. They see an efforts to expand military presence elsewhere in the region and beyond, places like Cambodia, the recent uh, efforts in the Solomon Islands. And then they see, as I as I've mentioned, this condominium between Russia and China. I, it's hard for me to overstate the galvanizing impact that that has had on Japanese public opinion. I think, frankly, the shock on the part of the Japanese public that China would choose to so explicitly align with Russia, given what it's doing in Ukraine, has had, I think, a very profound impact on Japanese public opinion. And it's reflected in the public debate on things like defense that I know that we'll get to. Thank you, Chris. I I do want to follow up and unpack some of the issues you just raised. So with respect to um, the Senkaku Islands, how would you describe what's been happening in, in the past year or two with respect to China-Japan interactions around that region? For, from the Japanese perspective, it's a picture of growing pressure on those islands and a sense that time is not on Tokyo's side, by which I mean, um, as time has gone on, the ability to have ships present in that area for longer periods of time in larger volumes, right? The number of Chinese ships present in the area, that's increased. And the Japanese have have attempted to match that by increasing their own Coast Guard presence based out of the Southern Ryukyus and have tried to sort of maintain rough numerical parity. But there is this strong sense that as China's shipbuilding capacity continues to grow, that the pressure on those islands is going to, to continue to increase and that at some point may prove more than the Japanese can manage. So that's part of also what is driving sort of the alliance discussion about contingency planning, responding to a situation in the East China Sea, whether one that's in the context of a cross-strait conflict or one that is sort of specific to, to the East China Sea. This, this backdrop of, of a sense of growing Chinese pressure on the islands is very much driving the, the Japanese perspective on this. And how much of this is impacting the overall China-Japan relationship 
and do these military developments or developments at sea, are they also bleeding into how Japan assesses its economic relationship with China? It definitely bleeds in. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, there's this separate focus in Japan on strengthening economic security legislation to better protect Japanese technology, supply chains, etc. A lot of that is, of course, motivated by the specific concerns of Japanese business and the sense that their uh, interests are at risk in some of China's practices at home. But it's also driven by a sense that the overall political relationship between the two countries is, is more and more unstable. I will say, as I alluded to early, earlier, this is not a, a dynamic in which Japan is pursuing decoupling. Again, China is Japan's number one trade partner. It remains a very significant target of foreign direct investment from Japanese companies. I think, frankly, that Tokyo would prefer and seeks stronger channels of communication with Beijing. I think there is a sense, frankly, that um, those channels are largely closed. Right now, you have an occasional interaction between Japan's national security advisor and Yang Jiechur, but not much else happening. So I do expect over the next, the coming months, that, that the Japanese will be focused on sort of rebuilding some level of communication with, with the Chinese leadership. But there's no question that the overall relationship is difficult, uh, and I expect will continue to, to be so for some time. As Japan rebuilds uh, communications with the Chinese leadership moving forward, we're also seeing Japan increase its defense spending. As you look at Japanese defense spending, what does this mean in terms of security in the East China Sea? Does this mean uh, significantly more spending on assets that could be used around Zenkakus? Or how is Japan thinking about its defense spending? I would say sort of upfront, I think it's fair to say that from a Japanese perspective, they see a more challenging regional security environment in their neighborhood, really than at any time since World War II. With the, the Russian invasion in Ukraine and the complete collapse of Japan's relationship with Moscow, which, as you probably know, was a focus of Prime Minister Abe, Japan now has the environment in which they've got the North Korean challenge, they've got what they see as a rising the China challenge, and now, of course, a difficult relationship with Russia. So that's a lot in one neighborhood. Also in the backdrop, I think, quite frankly, this is mostly unspoken, but there are no doubt concerns about the United States and the U.S. durability in the region. So uh, I, I think what you're seeing in Japan is a recognition that Japan needs to be able to do on, more on its own to defend its interests. There's clearly an evolution in Japan's thinking about deterrence. As you know, there's an ongoing discussion about acquiring what they call counter-strike capabilities, longer range missile systems that would allow them to strike fixed infrastructure on the Chinese mainland and in North Korea. What's striking about this debate is both how it's accelerated. The Japanese are now looking at options for acquiring a capability along these lines within the next five years. That's pretty ambitious. And how much public support there is for this discussion. It used to be that de defense and national security issues uh, were divisive, that the LDP would tend to downplay them in the election campaign and deal with them after an election. Now you have defense and national security as pillar one in the LDP's uh, manifesto. So there is, there is acceptance and public comfort with the defense trajectory that Japan is, is considering. I do think it's important, though, to, to keep this in perspective. Japan today spends around 1.1, 1.2% of GDP on defense. South Korea spends 2.5%. 
Australia spends 2%. So we're talking about a trajectory growth from a very low base. And so it's important not to not to exaggerate. It will take a long time for Japan even to approach the levels of spending in comparable or relative spending in, in Australia, for example. But there's been a real transformation, I think, uh, that's taken place in Japan and in the public about the urgency of national security, the urgency of defense, and the need to do to do something about it. Chris, you mentioned polling a couple of times. Could you share with us some of the most recent figures and if these figures have changed recently as a result of either Ukraine or other developments? So, for example, in a, in a recent public opinion poll that was done by Nippon.com, for example, two figures jump out at me, right? Sort of if you look in around the 2007 timeframe, the percentage of the Japanese public that had a good impression of China and a negative impression of China was about the same, sort of the high 30s, both, both figures. So not warm sentiment, but not terribly negative sentiment either, right? So that this is the decade of between 2000 and 2010. Today, if you look at the figures, above 80% of Japanese have a negative view of China and only around 10% have a positive one. And so this reflects the accumulation of baggage in the relationship that has taken place over the last 20 years. The perceptions of, of China's uh, military modernization, the incidents around the Senkakus, the rise of, of concerns about IP theft and business practices, all of that accumulates to a dynamic in which you know, Japanese views of, of China have become quite negative. As I said, that doesn't mean that we're headed into a, sort of a, a period of Cold War confrontation. But it does mean that there is support, strong support in Japan for a much more hawkish approach toward China than there was 10 or 15 years ago. So, Chris, you mentioned earlier that Japan is rebuilding communications with the Chinese, including with Yang Jiechi. And then you mentioned a number of issues that Japan has with China. To what extent is Japan trying to use communication with Chinese to make progress on these issues? And are you optimistic that Japan can use engagement to make progress? Yeah, I, I, my sense is that the Japanese view communication with the Chinese sort of in, uh, along similar lines to the way, you know, the Biden administration, that the, comp the competitive elements of the relationship are not going to go away. That's not the intent of the communication. The communication is needed to sort of put these guardrails on the relationship that, and that help to prevent crisis and help to manage the issues that will continue to be difficult, but it's important for the countries to be able to talk about. So that includes everything from bilateral trade and economic relationships to the energy picture in East Asia, climate change, to you know issues related to North Korea. I think there is a sense in Japan that actually communication links between the Biden White House and the Chinese are better than what Japan has. And there is concern about that and a focus on trying to do something about that. Trying to improve their communication. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let me touch on perhaps two thorny issues. The first is uh, Taiwan. Uh, the Japanese government has become increasingly outspoken in its support for Taiwan. Where do you assess the Japanese government is now on Taiwan? And has their position significantly impacted Japan's relationship with China, with Beijing directly. Yeah, this is an area where there's been, I think, interesting change on the part of Japan's approach. Much more open discussion and support for 
Taiwan, Taiwan's status internationally, and a sense of linkage between Japan's security and Taiwan's security. I think it's both ideational and strategic, by which I mean I think there's a genuine affinity in Japan for Taiwan and its democracy. That used to be sort of a, a view somewhat outside the mainstream of the Liberal Dem Democratic Party. Now it's very much part of the mainstream, and I think it's shared as much by Kishida's elements of the LDP as it is by Abe's. And so that by itself leads to a greater willingness to speak out on issues related to Taiwan and on the importance of cross-strait stability. Coupled with that is a real sense of linkage between Japan's security and Taiwan's security. In the past, I think it's fair to say there was a view in Japan that, that Japan would have the option of staying out of a conflict, that that was a viable approach and therefore the need to have an alliance discussion about cross-strait contingency response was not high. I think that's changed significantly as pressure on the, in the East China Sea has grown and Chinese capabilities have developed. Uh, and as I mentioned, as Japan has become more cognizant of the fact that much of those capabilities are directed at Japan or have Japan in mind behind their development in China, that view that Japan could choose to stay out has faded. And now what I think it's fair to say is you have, what I see are two broad views within the Japanese government about a Taiwan scenario. One view is that Taiwan's security and its de facto independence are by itself important for Japan. That Taiwan's viability as a de facto independent actor is in Japan's interest and important to Japan's security. That's one view. I think it's probably more strongly held in the, in the foreign ministry and the national security secretariat, but that's one view. The other view is much more narrowly focused on the defense of Japanese territory and the Senkakus and the East China Sea in particular. And that is the view that a Taiwan Strait contingency will inevitably spill over into the East China Sea. And so Japan will have to be involved to protect its territory, but that's the fundamental focus of its interest. But regardless, what you have is a consensus that Taiwan security affects Japan. That has enabled a much more public, as well as private, but public discussion of, about Japan's relationship with Taiwan and the importance of cross-strait stability. So now, very much part of the discourse, and you hear Diet members talk about it too, big change from the past. Has this, from your perspective, become a major thorn in, in China-Japan relations, or has China's response to Japan been relatively restrained? I think, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on this as well, Bonnie, but I think, uh, I think this is one of the things that concerns the Chinese and has contributed to the difficulty in the relationship, right? I mean, the, the fact that Japan is now so openly speaking about, about Taiwan, that Taiwan language is in every joint statement that the United States and Japan put out, I, I think clearly is, is part of the backdrop and the friction between the two. And perhaps a demonstration of, of some of the Chinese displeasure with the, uh, with the Japanese position on this are some of what we've seen as more Chinese operations around or near the Senkakus, including Chinese operations with Russia. How, how are these military operations, the, particularly the joint China-Russian military operations, perceived in Japan? Definitely the joint operations have very much got the attention in, in, in Tokyo and are, and are a source of alarm. The, the joint bomber operation on the, on the day of the quad in Tokyo got uh, headlines in Tokyo. Um, this strong sense of, of condominium between the two. This has fueled Kishida's rhetoric on Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. 
Um, I think the Japanese do recognize that that some of this is um, political symbolism, and I think they do understand that China has drawn lines and how far to go in supporting Russia in the war in Ukraine. But there's no question that the the two's cooperation has contributed to alarm in Tokyo and has fueled some of the interest, for example, in joining the NATO summit in Madrid and increasing Japan's engagement with NATO. From your perspective, what do you think is Japan's biggest fear with respect to what you've mentioned multiple times, the potential China-Russia condominium? What, what are they most concerned with? Is it that the two countries might work together against the, all the disputed territories that Japan has with both countries? Or is it much more larger geopolitically in terms of the general concern of the of their alignment. Yeah, I think it's the the general concern of their their geopolitical alignment. I mean, I think the Japanese are realistic about Russia's role in the in the in the Indo-Pacific. I don't think that there is necessarily a large perception of a Russian military threat to Japan, and I don't think that they view the condominium as fueling a Russian military threat to Japan. I think the the threat of the condominium is more more geopolitical, and I think it's more about what it for for the Japanese. I think it's more about what it says about China's ultimate intentions, right? That China could side so wholeheartedly with a country that invaded its neighbor in flagrant violation of international law, and then proceeded to carry out the atrocities that it has. The fact that China so explicitly aligned itself with a country taking those steps, I think was jarring. And so there's a lot of, that's part of the concern about ensuring that China draws particular lessons from the war in Ukraine and that those lessons include a clear understanding that the cost of the use of force would be exceptionally high. Are there those in Japan who are worried that a closer China-Russia alignment may mean that China could be taking the the wrong lessons learned and take a much more aggressive approach towards the region? And if China moves closer to Russia in a more antagonistic position against the West, the G7 developed democracies, that that might mean that Japan, for example, has less ability to shape or influence China's trajectory. Yes, I think that's very much part of it. I mean, I mentioned before the sort of the acceleration in the timeline in Japan's thinking about acquiring certain defense capabilities. This is very much a result of what Japan has seen with respect to the China-Russia condominium. The, the acceleration in that timeline flowed directly from what uh, Japan has seen in, in terms of the cooperation between between Moscow and Beijing. So let me also add North Korea to the picture. So Chris, you mentioned that. And one question I, I have in my mind is, to what extent has the Ukraine conflict and increasing U.S.-China tensions created more willingness from China to turn a blind eye towards North Korea? And is that what Japan perceives and does that create more concern on Japan's end in terms of what regional dynamics? Yeah, I think all that's fair, Bonnie. I mean, uh, candidly, I think Japan lost faith that China would be a constructive player on the Korean Peninsula some time ago. But I do believe that certainly 
the events in, in Ukraine and China's decision to align with Russia has had spillover effects on North Korea that definitely concern Japan. I mean, we've seen, for example, the Russian and Chinese cooperation in opposing resolutions on North Korea and the United Nations uh, that in the past they would have supported. So I think that is an example of an issue where, at least in, the, in a political sense, the Japanese do see consequence as a result of the of the condominium between Moscow and Beijing. Now, I, I don't think it necessarily changes the military picture, doesn't change Japan's sort of perspective on the likelihood of progress with North Korea, but it is part of the picture for Japan about why China-Russia cooperation makes their neighborhood more difficult, more challenging to deal with, because even on issues where there used to be some degree of consensus and ability to work together, those issues are hard now. If I can follow up on that, are there one or two issues that you can identify that Japan is actually cooperating to a significant degree with China on? It seems from your prior comment that those issues don't really exist. Or if those issues exist, it's very difficult for both sides to make significant progress on. But is there anything that comes to the top of your mind? As Japan looks to China, there's still one or two issues that are really a bright spot in the relationship. A bright spot in the relationship. It's hard to identify a bright spot, Bonnie. Look, I, I mean, I do think the, I, I wouldn't call it a, a, a bright spot and I wouldn't call it sort of a, a conscious result of, of policy or conscious cooperation between the two. But there's no question that the economic relationship is very important to both sides. I'd be interested in your views on this, Bonnie, but it seems to me, for example, that the Chinese have not attempted to use the tools of economic coercion against Japan in the same way that they have, for example, against South Korea or Australia. I'd be interested in whether you agree with that. We do have the case of the rare earth metals cut off around the 2010 timeframe when we first had the dust up over the Senkakus. But aside from that, I can't really identify an explicit attempt to use economic coercion to shape Japanese policy. I conclude from that 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 means that there is a great deal of interdependence, deep interdependence between these two countries, and that it's more challenging for China to find economic tools of coercion against Japan that wouldn't also implicate Chinese interests in ways that they're not prepared to, to do. So I do think that is a foundation of the relationship that it's important to remember the economic basis remains strong. Japan is taking steps to put bounds around it, to protect some critical interests, but the fundamental picture of, of Japan-China economic integration isn't changing and is unlikely to change. The Japanese will continue to seek to diversify locations for foreign direct investment, continue to explore opportunities in, in, in Vietnam and elsewhere in Southeast Asia to diversify supply chains, and their manufacturing base. But fundamentally, the, the importance of the Chinese market continues to be there. So I think that by itself is reason why at the leadership level in Tokyo, there's a desire for stronger communication channels. They do still have common interests um, that they need to be able to work on, particularly in the, in the economic space, and maybe down the road on areas like climate change and, and, and so on as well. So, Chris, as we talk about Japanese views of China, a key question that always comes up when uh, we're looking at China is how much of China's views is driven by these longer trends that general Chinese political leaders believe or what's happening 
under the leadership of Xi Jinping, how much Xi Jinping is driving Chinese policy. So as Japan looks to China, is their assessment of China mainly driven by their perception of Xi or something broader, larger beyond just Xi? I think they view it as, as more than just the President Xi Jinping. I, I think, as I, as I said at the outset, this relationship now has a 40 to 50 year arc that, from the Japanese perspective, kind of moves in one direction. And Xi is the, the current leader and the current manifestation of China's strategy, but he's not, I would think, from the Japanese perspective, by and large, not viewed as, as a departure from the past. And uh, his, his departure uh, would not necessarily result in a change in, in China's policy. I remember, I think the Japanese reached this conclusion before we did about China. I remember having the, one of the first NSC to NSS dialogues on China in the White House probably six or seven years ago. And at that point, it was still the Obama administration, still what had been the previous frame on China policy, the logic of engagement, the belief that engagement could shape China. At that point, my Japanese counterparts were basically dismissive of the, of the view that China could be shaped. Their view already at that time was that we needed to focus on deterrence and shaping the environment around China rather than attempting to shape China itself. So I think Japan has been moving down this path for some time and in some ways has reached conclusions about its own China strategy more quickly than we did here here in the United States. And a function of them living next door and dealing with the rise of China in a more direct way, I think, in some ways than, than we did. Uh, so, Chris, I, uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to wrap up this podcast with one final question for you. Uh, what do you expect as the future of China-Japan relations in the coming years, and what worries you the most? Yeah, as I said before, Bonnie, I, I view Kishida's approach on China policy as very much a continuation of the track that, that Abe and Suga put it on. The steps that Kishida is looking at are not a departure from the past. They're a natural extension of, of where Japan has been and its response to what it sees as, as, as China's rise and China's increasingly aggressive behavior. The one thing I will say is I do think, I do think China's behavior matters in the way that Japan responds, by which I mean, if, J if China were to dial back pressure on the Senkaku Islands, reestablish senior level communication, resume a dialogue on energy exploration in the East China Sea, I think because of the economic interests I noted earlier, that would produce a real change in Tokyo. And you would see not in the, the underlying concern about China, not in the underlying desire to strengthen the alliance, strengthen defense capabilities, be prepared to respond to, in a contingency, but in the tone of engagement and in, in, in Tokyo's approach to managing relations with China and the desire to find areas where they can cooperate. I do think China's behavior matters. Uh, and it could produce a, a, a similar response in Tokyo. The thing that I worry the most about, I look, I think uh, the East China Sea remains the most sort of proximate flashpoint risk that we have. There are times, particularly in the fishing season, which is about to resume in the August, September timeframe, there are a lot of boats on the water there. And the possibility of an incident that results in the use of force, commanders on the scene making decisions, that remains, I think, a real risk. And one we haven't had to, to confront for a while, 
but is is very much, I think, something that that could precipitate a larger incident. And that, too, I think, is part of uh, the desire for the Japanese to have crisis communication channels uh, with the Chinese. In addition to the leader level or senior official level, level dialogue, there's also been an effort to establish sort of defense ministry to defense ministry communication channels. They've formally agreed to do this in practical terms. The channel has never been executed. And I don't even think they put the equipment in place to execute it. But there is that recognition that that would be uh, that could be an important channel in the event of an incident like this, which I do think continues to be the greatest risk for sort of an unintended confrontation. Thank you very much, Chris, for such a wide-ranging discussion on China-Japan relations, as well as how Japan views China. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure uh, and look forward to, to joining you again.